This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. When the jury panel comes into the courtroom and the bailiff says, all rise, I know we're here. And it doesn't matter who they are, nobody should be above the law. A lot of us talk about that, but you actually done it. That's how you also maintain quality control over your practice. Yeah. That's a question I get asked a lot, and here's the answer. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation. Your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, I'm joined by my partner, Mallory Peacock, for another table talk. How are you doing this morning, Mallory? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. It's early in the morning, and we have lots to do today, but I'm excited to be here. Yeah, me too. So it is time for uh, answering questions from our listeners. Here's the first one. Uh, question from me and others are, what are the best resources for a newer lawyer starting out in the personal injury trial lawyer world? Well, Michael, I think this is a question that you can answer because you are such a fan of reading books and looking for different kinds of literature to really help your practice and not just your practice, but also um, your business. So what are some of your favorites? You know, I think it really, my favorites now would not be my favorites for someone that's starting off. Uh, for example, one of my favorites now is 12 Heroes, One Voice by Carl Bettinger, which is a brilliant book, but it's an advanced book that assumes you've got a lot of other concepts before you do that. Uh, so I'd start uh, with the AHA Depositions book. I know Philip Miller, I don't know who else wrote that. Scopter, right? Scopter, I think Scopter and Miller. Uh, I think that's a really good one because the fact is 90-something percent of your cases are going to settle uh, and getting the depots done right makes it more likely they're going to settle for good money and if you are going to have to go to trial, makes it where you're ready. I think the David Ball on damages third is an essential. Uh, it really uh, breaks it down into how to argue the case in a logical and coherent format and it's not going to leave holes in your story. Um, so I would definitely recommend that. The Rules of the Road uh, by Freeman and Malone, again, another, I just think you just have basic tools you need to have in your arsenal, and again, how to simplify your case instead of making it some mishmash of they should have been safe to, you know, they should have done X, you know, and here's why X is a safety rule. I, I think those are all really good ones. Why do you think that, um, all of these books that you listed, I've read them, and I think all of them are about simplifying your case. Um, why is it so important to for a lawyer to learn from law school where everything's so complex to presenting to a jury where you have to make things simple? Why is that so difficult for lawyers, do you think? You know, because it's a, it takes a lot more work to make things simple. Uh, and I think sometimes the complexity is what we hide behind because of our own insecurities. Uh, we try to baffle them with BS. I and you and I have worked on this. Like we have a case, we've got a gut. We understand why the defendant did something wrong, but to simplify it, I mean, we spent multiple days working on you know turning a complex case into a few sentences. Um, but it is so important, and uh, and it's not really that jurors aren't smart. Actually, it's just that if we present a bunch of confusing stuff that plays right into the defense's hands. Yeah, I think complexity and confusion is a defense tool, um, and simplification is a plaintiff's tool. Absolutely. That's in one of the 
one of those books that I just talked about. Yeah. I don't remember which one. Uh, you know, there's also some really good courses out there uh, for people that want to get into this. And, uh, you know, I would start with a simple, especially if you have an electoral ad, advocacy work in law school, you know, some of the simple stuff like how to get, how to make an objection, how to get your evidence in, uh, that stuff's important. Uh, I know AAJ has their ultimate trial uh, they, the college. They also have other little, like smaller trial colleges that go on. Uh, a lot of state bars have stuff like that. Uh, Texas Trial Lawyers Association, for those of us in, who are in Texas, every other year has the Trial Advocacy College of Texas. I did that early on, and that was a nice practical step-by-step uh, -step how to do stuff. So, I mean, I would also encourage someone to do that because, you know, we talk about all this theory, but if you don't know what, you know, what is the foundation to get your evidence in, how do you lay your predicate, uh, how do you handle common objections, if, if you can't handle that basic stuff, you can't do the advanced stuff. The basic stuff has to just become rote. Yeah, I um, I also really enjoy the AJ Depot College. I thought that was just an amazing program, and goes back to what you said earlier that depositions really can form the foundation of your case. And if you can't get them right, then it's really hard to be ready for trial. <laughs> Absolutely, and there is a AJ Depot College coming up in the fall uh, that's focusing on trucking cases for anyone to be interested. I'm not going to be there. I don't make any money off this, but it is a, it is a good program. I know I'm sure we'll be sending someone from the firm to it. Oh yeah. Now, if you want to get into you know subject matter, so I think that's the first thing is just kind of getting the the very basics, and then I think you should pick some area to be good at. You got to you know you can't know everything about everything, uh, and so just really look at the kind of programs that are actually giving content and not just having speakers promoting themselves or trying to make it sound like, oh, this is so hard, no one else can do it but me, kind of impliedly, like, you're not smart enough to do this, so you better refer it out. Um, and, you know, a lot of that, you just have to try different things and see what works, what doesn't, ask around. Uh, I know one thing, I'm we're just reviewing uh, a CLE that we helped put on for Texas Trial Lawyers, and one of the things I was talking to the guy at TTLA that's in charge of CLE is, he was asking for my input on speakers and who was good, who was bad. I said, you know what, what I really think the difference was is everybody was smart. Everyone gave content. But I like the people that gave solutions. It didn't just talk about, well, you know, this sucks. We have these issues in the law. I want people to say, you know, this case came out. It presents a challenge. Here's three ways to try to overcome that challenge. Uh, and that's the kind of thing I think you should look for. So, you know, like I said, I know if you would do the you want to be a product liability lawyer, then you should join Attorneys Information Exchange Group and go to their seminars because they're brilliant. If you want to be a trucking lawyer, then you should join the Academy of Trucking Accident Attorneys. You should join the AHA Trucking Litigation Group and go to their stuff because it's absolutely brilliant and will give you the foundation for what you need to do. I know there's similar things in nursing home and medical negligence. Uh, car wrecks, there's all kinds of different things. I would recommend doing something that's plaintiff-specific. I know at least in Texas, a lot of the state bar ones are so neutral that maybe go once to kind of get a feel for the law, but they're just not as helpful because, again, they're going to be just kind of telling you what the law is rather than practical ways of how to use it to win your case. Right. Well, and I think that we all need to remember that, especially if you're a new lawyer, you really should know how to research the law. That's kind of what they teach you in law school. They don't teach you the application as much. And so you want those courses that really teach you the application as opposed to just what reading about what the law is. You can do that on your own time. Yeah. And I guess this is... Uh, not everyone would agree with me on the timing of this. I would think that once you have the 
fundamentals down, which is you know how to get evidence in, uh, you, you tried a few cases. Uh, I would recommend exploring whether the trial lawyers college is the right fit for you or not. I'd, I'd start with a three day, I wouldn't start off with 21 days out in Wyoming. Um, <laughs> not, it's not for everybody, it, it's done a whole lot for me. Uh, I've gotten a lot out of it. I did it so early in my career, I've never known how to practice another way. So I, I did it back in 1998 when I was a three year lawyer. So I'm not a 100% follow any one methodology, but it has influenced the way we practice. But I have noticed that no other lawyer who has worked with me in the last 21 years who has met me and gone through that has chosen to go through it on their own. So, <laughs> uh, you know, it is, like I said, it's not for everybody. Um, and I don't know that everybody's going to get a lot out of it. Um, but I, a lot, if you're ready for it, uh, I think it has a lot to add for a lot of people. Anything else that you've you've done besides the depot college you thought was particularly helpful? Um, I like the I like the more specific skills courses. I mean, we focus our practice on trucking for a while. We were doing product liability, um, and when I'd go to those sort of topic specific courses, those were always way more helpful to me than just sort of a general personal injury program because there'd be so much in just a general personal injury program that we just don't do. Um, and then people would try to make everything so basic because it's supposed to be for everybody that it ultimately didn't end up being very helpful in the, in the practice. Then another related question, other than trial lawyers college, the best trial schools, Trojan Horse, any others? Uh, I can't speak for Trojan Horse because I haven't been there. I've heard, I've heard good things about it. Um, I know the people that are putting it on are accomplished trial lawyers, but I don't have any personal experience with it. I guess maybe I'll need to uh, I'll need to go to it one day and give a give a review. <laughs> any any that you can think of besides the ones we've already talked about? I know there's the NIDA National Institute of Trial Advocacy has one. You know I would not particularly recommend that one. I've not been to it, but it's just too much of stand in this one place, do this exact thing. I think it's more for for the basics, and I would I would really recommend on someone doing something that's really meant for plaintiffs lawyers if you want to be a plaintiffs lawyer. I think one thing that, you know, everybody that wants to be a trial lawyer has to do is go watch trials or go second chair trials with people who know what they're doing. Um, it, watching it over and over in real life and real circumstances, I mean, you can go and act it out with a bunch of lawyers as much as you want, but actually seeing it in person helps. <laughs> I agree. And, you know, just... If you, especially if you're on your own, I mean, it's hard to do because you need to keep the lights on, but volunteer. I mean, go ask people, can I can I second chair you for free? Uh, or get a case, if you're not ready to try a case on your own, find someone else to try the case with you, but not just a friend that also doesn't know what they're doing. I mean, find someone that you know has a little more experience, who's done it a few more times. And I was actually at lunch with somebody last week and he was asking me that question because he's got we're doing a couple of his bigger cases together, but he's got a lot of small to medium-sized car wreck cases that need to get tried. You know, I'm no longer at a point in my career where I'm trying those cases, and so one of the things I'm trying to do, I feel like a matchmaker. I'm trying to hook him up because he wants to try them, but he wants to be with, he wants to do a few with someone else that knows what they're doing. So I'm trying to set him up with someone else who's at a point of their career that would welcome that and that would also have something to teach him. So, you know, just looking for those opportunities. Uh, and it's and it's hard because, you know, you never know what cases are really going to go. Uh, 
the other thing is it's not a good business thing, but take some bad cases and you get to try them. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had a friend actually a few weeks ago ask me, because she has a case that she thinks is going to go to trial. It's a um, premises liability case, which I have not really any interest in trying premises liability cases. But she's really nervous about the Vordire part, and she knows that I've done it a few times. And so she asked me to come sit with her for Vordire and help her strategize for it. And so, you know, it's... She's my friend, so I'm going to go and do spend an hour of my time or whatever it is to help her with it. But I think asking someone that's done it before is is helpful, even if you're going to do it yourself, to help strategize. In, in practice, too. I mean, the things I did, you know, ideally we get before a trial, we'll bring in focus group type people. We're bringing people that don't know anybody. And we'll practice for a dial. We'll practice opening. We might put a witness in front of them. Uh, that being said... On smaller cases, what I used to do is I'd call up a few of my friends and say, "Look, I'll I'll have cold beer and pizza if you'll you know humor me and uh, give me some feedback." And it's you know not as good as having a professional, not as good as having strangers, but it's better than nothing. And you get more comfortable talking to people, uh, and you do get some feedback. Now the problem with your friends is they'll tell you how good you are, <laughs> um, but it's better than nothing. Um, and just having that practice doing it. Before you go in there in a real courtroom, makes all the difference. Mm-hmm. I know that you, the first time I was going to go to trial, you um, gathered everybody in our office, and I practiced for Dyer in front of just people in our office because it was a small case. It wasn't worth paying people to come in and do it, but it really helped. I mean, we had everybody in our office assume a different role that wasn't them um, just to try to get it to be more realistic. We didn't want people to have plaintiff bias. So we asked them to pick someone in their family that maybe isn't too fond of plaintiff's work <laughs> um, and be that person and what they would say when they were asked questions. And so that's how I practice for my force for dire. And frankly, that's what they do at trial lawyers college. They have different, uh, it's the other students there pretending to, you know, enrolling themselves in, in the roles of different jurors uh, rather than bringing in strangers. And it seems to work. So, you know, like I said, find friends, practice. Um, but again, you need to eventually to learn, you need to find someone to learn from. And I think that's just join your local trial organizations, have lunch with people, make friends, sit there and watch them try cases, ask a second chair, ask someone else to come in and try a case with you. Uh, it makes a huge difference rather than just going out there and floundering. Yep. Another question is, how do you handle lawyer referrals to the doctor? Own them, try to keep them out, avoid them altogether. Have you ever voir dire to panel on this issue and how did that turn out? I think this is a complicated question that requires a little background for some of our listeners who are either just getting into personal injury or who are um, thinking about getting into personal injury. So why why would a lawyer refer someone to a doctor? Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of doctors, and it happened to me, I got, my, my car got hit by a bus, um, and I I was on the way to a hearing, and I was limping around. The judge told me, like, get out of here and go to the doctor. I went to my family doctor who I'd seen not two days before. I have health insurance. And when I get in there, the, the woman up front says, oh, you're in, a, you're in an accident. Uh, we don't take your insurance for accidents. It has to be $300 up front. And I got pissed off and went home. <laughs> took that bill. Uh, but the fact is a lot of doctors will not work with people who have been in uh, in crashes or in other incidents that are going to go into litigation. There's a couple of reasons for that. One is that even though insurance companies are supposed to pay and subrogate, 
sometimes when the insurance company finds out it's been an accident, they will actually pull the money back from the doctor and tell them that they need to go try to collect it from the liability insurance company. And you can say, oh, well, they're not supposed to do that. What they do. And, or at least the doctors believe that they do. And I've had doctors tell me it's happened to them. Uh, the other thing is a lot of doctors just, they don't want to deal with us. They don't want to deal, they don't want to be deposed. They don't want to have to document things in their records. They just want to go on with their lives. And so a lot of them just won't see someone who's in litigation. And then frankly, a lot of like the family doctors aren't very well educated in back injuries uh, or neck injuries or whatever your case is. So going to the family doctor who may be great for colds or screening for diabetes, they just, they don't have the knowledge and training. And a lot of times they are so anti-lawsuit uh, by their bent because they're so scared of getting sued themselves that you know they won't give someone the help they need so a lot of times clients need advice on you know a doctor that will actually see them and, uh, and and thoroughly work up their injuries okay so that's a little bit of background and what is the perceived issue I guess with lawyers referring to I mean the question is how do you handle it so what is yeah. the perceived issue well you can tell us what is the perceived issue <laughs> so the perceived issue is that basically attorneys are sending clients to doctors that aren't injured um, to try to work up some kind of fake medical injury uh, in order to get more money right. um, and so that it's kind of a collusion between the doctor and the client and the lawyer and everybody's kind of in on it and trying to raise the amount for damages or pretend someone's hurt that isn't. And, you know, I've, I've taken different approaches to this at trial. Uh, sometimes I do eliminate it out uh, if I can. And there is a line of cases, at least in Texas, and I think this line of cases is pretty universal, that it is fundamental error. I mean, in Texas, you don't even have to object to it. It's so fundamental. To attack the integrity of opposing counsel without a actual factual basis for doing so without some kind of proof and so to say that my opposing counsel committed fraud by entering into a fraudulent collusion with another with a doctor and then that doctor committed fraud uh, by you know falsely claiming people were injured unless there's some evidence that that actually happened and not just the mere fact that a lawyer made a recommendation to go see a particular doctor uh, that is totally improper and so I think it is appropriate, uh, if that's the tact you want to take, uh, to file a motion to eliminate and keep that out. Uh, the problem with motions to eliminate is that whenever you tell your client not to talk about something, they get nervous about it. Uh, even if they don't spit it out, which half the time they just spit it out anyway, uh, because you tell someone not to say something, that's all they think about that, and then they end up saying it. It affects their testimony because they're so nervous about accidentally spitting it out or accidentally opening a door to it. So I don't know that that's always the best approach, but I do think it's absolutely appropriate unless there's evidence. And, and look, there have been some scams out there. And uh, but unless there's evidence that this is one of those, actually one of those scams, uh, I do think it's appropriate to keep it out. It's not my preferred method, though. What is the preferred method? Well, what I have found is a, whether so here's an example. If I come home late at night, and I've been working all night, and my wife says, where have you been? I'm not going to look nervous, because I have been working all night. Uh, if hypothetically I was out carousing uh, and, and drinking and maybe talking to people I shouldn't be talking to, I may look a little more nervous or shifty when I get asked that question. Um, I think the way you react 
uh, to the issue has more to do with whether it's a problem or not. The jury, jurors don't know whether this is normal or not. Um, a lot of them just assume that it, I know our clients ask us for advice on what doctor to go to, so I don't see that it would be uh, necessarily an issue. And so if you just for dire on, okay, I have a, you know, what am I supposed to do? I have a client, they're in pain, they ask for advice on what doctor to see, or they're not sure what doctor to go see, they don't know any specialists in this area, what should I do? Most people say, well, tell them to go see a doctor, give them a name. I mean, it's if you if you own it, if you're not ashamed of it, uh, and you haven't done anything wrong, and just talk about it. it, it doesn't seem to be a problem for me. I don't think I've ever lost a case on that issue. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking, commercial motor vehicle, and product liability cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We would be honored to review the case in detail, discuss where we believe we can add value, and create a mutually beneficial partnership. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. And now, back to the show. Yeah, and jurors, in every aspect of the case, whatever you make a big deal about, that's what they think is the big deal in the case. So it's sort of the, any of your heartaches in the case or things that you think that are going to be problems. I mean, the bigger deal you make about it, the bigger deal the jury is going to make about it. It's sort of like if you think that someone is on their cell phone, right? A defendant is on their cell phone. If you can't prove it and you accuse someone of being on their cell phone, well, then the jurors think that that's what the case is about. So you, they think that you have to prove that. And, you know, you might have negligence some other way, but they think it's about cell phone use. So whatever you make the case about is what the jurors think the case is about. I totally agree, but you have to get it where you and your client are both fine with nothing bad happened here, there's nothing wrong with it. And if you're just proud of it, you own it, it's like, yes, what kind of human being would I be? If someone is in pain, I'm going to tell them, brain injury happens all the time. We're sitting here with someone, we spend more time talking to them and we pay more attention to them than a family doctor does. It spends 45 seconds, rushes them in, rushes them out. Uh, we notice someone is having trouble remembering things, isn't acting right. We talk to the, their spouse or other family member, and they say, yeah, they're not the same person anymore. What kind of human beings would we be if we didn't tell them, hey, go get this checked out? Mm-hmm. So I don't have a problem with it. Um, that being said, you know, it's case by case, and if you feel like you don't want to deal with it, I think there's a good basis for, for eliminating it. I also think it's attorney-client privilege uh, if you can keep your client from waiving it, um, and I think that you know you, and ideally you could keep discovery from it. But a lot of these stupid doctors put referred by and they put the lawyer's name in there, and I think that ruins the, that may waive the attorney-client privilege when it's put in other documents. Although those are other otherwise privileged documents, but I still, I still think the advice we give to our clients is privileged. I don't think we get into going, we don't get to go into how they selected their experts. Um, but that being said. I still, at the end of the day, I, every time I try to hide something in a trial, it almost always comes back to bite me. I almost always feel like I would have been better off just telling the whole truth, owning it, and going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, Mallory, here's another question, and this is something that I know you spent a ton of time on, and that is, why do lawyers say it's important to make the case about the company and not the low-level employee, and then how do you do that? 
big it question. is a big question with a complex answer that we could probably talk for days about. But the most basic answer about why you want to make it about the company, there's two reasons. One is that's where your deep pocket is, right? Those are the ones that it takes a lot of money to punish or to show that they did something wrong. Um, but two, oftentimes the individual that did something wrong is likable. <laughs> um, it's easier to dislike a company than it is to dislike an individual who made a mistake. Um, and when a company puts an individual in a position where it's inevitable that they're going to make those mistakes and it's inevitable that they're going to hurt someone, then it really is the company's fault. Uh, but I think, one, it's about where the deep pocket is, but even more than that, it's about who can be the best trial villain, um, which is a theme that you've been working on. I agree. I think, you know, when you talk about, like, let's say a defendant driver, I mean, they're usually making a, a mistake over a period of seconds, whereas companies that, you know, don't have good safety programs, uh, do they often make choices, not mistakes, over a period of months or years. Uh, so it's just much more... It's, it's harder to forgive them, whereas it's easy to forgive someone for making a mistake, for taking your eye off the road for a second, for being distracted for a minute, for driving a little too fast. It's harder to forgive someone for knowing that you need to have a company safety program and you just don't do it or you do a, what I call a check-the-box job where you, you make it look like you did it, but you don't really put any effort into it. Um, there's causes of action, I think, in every state for not just the individual negligence against the um, individual person, but there's causes of action against companies. Um, and there's a wide range of them. You know, there's negligent training, negligent supervision, negligent monitoring, negligent entrustment. Um, is that all of them? Retention. Retention. Um, Qualification. You can call it whatever you want, but really it's negligence. Um, and it's type of negligence that you would have against the company uh, for the way that they treated uh, their employee. And pretty much everywhere but Colorado, you can uh, almost always get this in. Colorado makes you pick between having responded superior vicarious liability at all or doing one of these. It's a horrible opinion. Every other state, at least if you get to gross negligence, uh, and some you don't even have to do that, you get to have both, uh, which is really important because you want to be able to bring out the whole story about what really happened, and especially if we want to make the world a safer place we need to go into what is the cause of these accidents. And they're not just drivers making mistakes. Their company's not having safety programs. Um, does this making it about the company work in other contexts? I think it does, outside of trucking. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's what made, you know, that's why nursing home cases, until the nursing home industry just started making every nursing home a separate company without enough insurance, uh, stuff like that, were so good for so long because it wasn't about what the individual nursing assistant did. It came to understaffing and not having enough people there, hiring bad people, falsifying the documentation to bill, to bill for things you didn't really do, uh, those kind of things, even, even premises cases. I mean, why aren't people looking at the floor more often? Why has this architectural defect been there for so long and no one's fixed it? And of course, you know, product cases, it's never about the person designing the product. It's about the people, the, what they call the bean counters, the, the people at the top that won't let them spend the money to improve the product. Uh, and I think every kind of case, if you have a corporate defendant or a company defendant, uh, 
uh, you should look for a way to try to make it about the company. But how do you do that? It is a complex question. <laughs> um, and so to make something about the company, you have to start with the root cause of why did your client get injured? Why and how? Um, and then you have to work your way up that root cause analysis to get to not just why an individual hurt your client, but why did that individual find themselves in that situation at all? Um, and that usually leads back up to the company. What do you mean by a root cause? Um, so a root cause is not just the immediate cause of the crash so that someone was texting and not looking at the road, right? That's that's the immediate cause of the crash. The root cause is why was someone texting and not looking at the road? Well, how did they find themselves in that position? And ultimately, if they're working for a company, the company in some way allows them to do that, right? If, if you're doing something that you know is going to either injure yourself or injure someone else, you know, that's that's the individual's fault. But most people don't cause crashes on purpose. I mean, that's not... Yeah, even then I think it's you can go at it. So the way I look at it is, let's say someone does something dangerous or stupid that causes a crash. So let's say texting and driving, for example. There's one of two things that happen. Well, one of three things. One, in, in theory, I think with texting, it's hard to say anymore. They didn't know it was dangerous. I think that's pretty unlikely. The second is they didn't know how dangerous it was, how likely it was. So someone says, oh, I know it's not a good idea to text and drive, but I'm just looking real quick. Well, did you know that the average time it takes a person's attention is off the road to look at a text is five seconds? Did you know that at 60 miles an hour, you're traveling 88 feet per second, so you're traveling 440 feet, a football field and a half, and the average time blind, the average time it takes to, to check a text. If you don't know that, then you don't have an appreciation for the danger, and if the person will then say, hey, if I had realized it was that dangerous, I wouldn't have done it, well, then, you've, then you can bring that back to the company. The third type is, yes, I knew it was dangerous, I did it anyway. Well, why the hell is this person driving for you? You know, and it, it, what are the odds that this is the first time that that's happened? And that's where you get to looking at driving records, looking at their safety performance, whether at the company, so that would be the negligent hiring, negligent retention, negligent monitoring. And we've seen all kinds. I mean, we, you and I have worked on cases, it seems to be like the not training someone, them not fully understanding the risk. They may understand this isn't the best idea, but not fully understanding the risk and the consequences and the probability of something bad happening. Uh, but the other one is just we've had cases where, you know, we had one where we just settled where someone was texting and they hit somebody and it was on video and the company just supposedly has to talk with them about it but doesn't do anything else special. Uh, and three months later, this exact same wreck happens again. They're texting again to hit somebody else. Uh, that's on the company. I mean, like they've already had... They've already known this person's doing it. They have in-camera in monitoring, and when we went and got the cell phone records and compared them to the driver logs, the person was constantly on the phone uh, while they were driving. This wasn't a first time, uh, and the company should have caught that. They should have monitored. Uh, or people have bad driving records, or you know, but they hired them anyway. So I think you know those are things we look at to try to make it about the company and not just about the individual driver. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that the... Um it takes a lot, this kind of goes back to the simplification of a case that we were talking about earlier. It takes a lot of concentration, time, and effort 
to figure out why something happened. It can't be a million reasons why this happened, right? You have to boil it down to the very specific, what we call a root cause, of why it happened. So it can't be that maybe he didn't know, maybe he wasn't trained, maybe he did it over and over again. No, you have to limit it to what is the real reason that this happened. And that takes discovery, depositions. I mean, it's it's a process. And it also takes a plan before. You can't just go in... And that's one thing I've really been working on the last few years uh, is that I used to think I knew how to do a trucking case. There were like six or seven things I was looking for. I had them in my standard depot notice, and I just go in. Okay, is, is there a log? Is there a fatigue issue? Is there a driver qualification issue? You know, does this person have a bad driving record? Do they have other crashes? Uh, is there a training issue? And I just be looking for that stuff, but just kind of like in my depots. Whereas now. You know, we try to go back and we get a hypothesis of what is our root cause analysis, what are the possible immediate causes, what can we eliminate, and we go in there with a plan for how we think our place is going to be and how we're going to show it before we take our first depot. But then that's not enough because a lot of times we base our analysis on all the information that we have at that time, and then in the depots we learn new things, and then they suddenly produce new documents, and, you know, I will just last week, we have a huge case, and we were produced no policies, no training, nothing. And uh, we take the first two depositions, and the driver says, no, I've never been trained. I never saw a policy. And the next morning, they produce a policy. Mm. I had <laughs> a feeling they, that might happen. Yeah. <laughs> and so we have to make an adjustment. Now, luckily, the driver had already said he'd never seen it, and so we've got a great, that's an even better case now, because we've gone from having no policy, which may mean they didn't know any better, to... They have a policy, but they didn't bother to uh, to train the driver on it. Uh, and so, you know, Robert or Thomas, if you're listening, I'm giving you a little of my strategy, but <laughs> you were sitting there in the depots, and you probably knew what it was anyway. <laughs> um, I think one of the things in coming up with the plan, this sounds very scientific, the way that you described it. I hadn't thought about it that way before, but um, it is very scientific in a way that you have to ask the right questions to I guess, support whatever your hypothesis is. Um, And you have to ask detailed, specific questions, and you have to keep drilling down until you get an answer that either supports your hypothesis or tells you that you need to go back to the drawing board and figure out, you know, what it is instead. Um, And so you can't stop at, you know, it's easy to stop when someone says, well, um, I have a commercial driver's license, and so I took the course and I know how to drive an 18-wheeler, right? Uh, that's not, right? That's not enough. And so you have to keep drilling down and figure out what are the rules that you understand and know and what are the rules you don't understand and know. Obviously, there's some rule that they didn't understand and know because if you follow all the rules exactly, you don't get in crashes. So. And it is important to just, you know, use that, you know, junior high science. And, you know, I get reminded of this stuff because I was helping a, a junior high kid, my son, <laughs> study last year. Uh, but, you know, we use whatever we can to learn. You know, is the, a lot of trial lawyers just, they want to jump to the pay payoff. They want to say, okay, this is a case where the company put profits over people. That may be where it ends up. That's what we hope it ends up. But we can't just instantly go from we had a crash to the company doesn't care. We have to go step by step because what we have to do at trial is tell the story one piece of evidence at a time, step by step by step, where the jury concludes on their own without without us telling them that this company put profits over people. We don't have the credibility just to go say it and they're going to believe us. 
Uh, and if we say it first, I think there's going to be people that are going and fighting us on it instinctively. Like if we say something, there's that one juror that always wants to argue with us. So I think just having gone through that method of why is it this, you know, step by step, why did the wreck happen? Well, why did that happen? Why did that happen? We go through the five wives of a root cause analysis. And, and, you know, so a driver was texting. Why did that driver think it was okay to be texting? Oh, he didn't? Well, why would that person driving, if they would do these kind of things, had this person done it before? Should the company have known about this? Should this person have even been driving? Um, what could companies do to keep people from texting and driving? When we ask all those questions first and then come up with our theory and then do the depots and test it, uh, it's just amazing how much better the cases turn out. But it does take the discipline of not only doing the work at the beginning, but then re reassessing it after each round of discovery, and then before you try it, you know, if it's a big enough case to support it, you know, doing your focus group work and saying, okay, I've got I've got this great plan. Is anyone going to buy it? Yeah. Uh, or am I just, you know, because we're we're trying to make a we have a, a motive. Or we have a bias because if we're right, we make a bunch of money, and so we tend to believe our own BS a lot. Uh, so it's always important, I think, to test it if it's a big enough case to do that. Yeah, it's important to test it. And, even, and you know, if if you can't focus group it, you have to be very, very critical of um, your process. And I say that in that you need to be able to lay out step by step by step how you're going to get to your final theme of the case. If it's profits over people or whatever it is, where you're going to be able to lay it out for the jury and they're going to come up with your theme for you without you ever saying those words. And so it, it's very tedious, um, but necessary, I think. I agree. Um, and, and if you can't afford to do a focus group, you can do informal focus groups, which we talked about earlier. I mean, you can talk to your friends or your family about your case and see what they come up with. You could talk to people at bars or restaurants about it. You can talk to people at a cocktail party. People love to hear about what cases you're working on and about stuff that's going, lawyer stuff. I mean, we see it all the time, so we don't think it's as interesting as other people think it is. Yeah, David Ball said to walk up to random people at the mall and offer to buy them an ice cream. Now, to me, that sounds creepy, <laughs> but maybe, you know, you could probably get away with that more than I could. Uh, um, I mean, people over 18, let's be honest, let's be clear. But uh, but yeah, you know, he's but he's right. Just finding random people and talking to them about them uh, about this stuff. But it is so cheap to find somebody. And and look, you know, in an ideal world where you do all this super scientific stuff. But even if you just use Craigslist and offer to pay people twenty bucks to spend an hour with you uh, talking about this stuff, it's still better than no feedback at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we have learned from focus groups that you don't. You don't, you're not always there. You're not always where you think that you are in a case. Um, you know, there's a little bit of confirmation bias that you have working with other similarly minded attorneys. Um, and then there's a little bit of your, the curse of knowledge. Um, you know where these cases generally go, you know what you're generally looking for. And you have to remember the jury doesn't have the curse of knowledge and they don't have your confirmation bias usually. And so, um, you know, we've learned through focus groups. They don't always get there the yeah. way that we thought. <laughs> Which is why I think the, and it's what we've really learned from Rodney Jew is taking people one step at a time back by fact and, and so that they can get there on their own and, and telling a story that just leads to the inevitable conclusion. 
mm-hmm. uh, of who the good guy is, who the bad guy is, what what's right, what's wrong. But it just uh, it takes a lot of work to get there, but it's so worth it when you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's it for today's episode. Thank you so much. Please keep sending the questions in, and we'll keep answering them. I uh, look forward to having you next with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you're listening to this episode on a mobile device, please click on Ratings and Review and leave our show a five-star rating and write a review. And if you're listening to this episode from our website, please leave a five-star rating on the episode page. We'd love to reach more listeners, and doing this will help more attorneys find this podcast. You can also visit our website at www.triallawyernation.com to opt into our mailing list so you can stay updated on our new episodes. I promise we won't spam you. And thanks to your feedback, we've improved our podcast website. There's now a resources tab that you can click that shows you all the books we've mentioned on our podcast. If you have a Facebook account, please send us a request to join a private group called Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle. This exclusive group will allow you to hear about our guests before an episode airs, interact with the show, and get a sneak peek at some of the behind the scenes moments. I love to hear from all of you, and our Table Talk episodes are based solely on questions from our fans. So please continue to send us emails at podcast at triallawyernation.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking, commercial motor vehicle, and product liability cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We would be honored to review the case in detail, discuss where we believe we can add value, and create a mutually beneficial partnership. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.